All right, good evening, CTK. Uh, My name is Steven. I'm I'm the business operations manager, and I am a deacon postulant still here at CTK. Now, as Jesse usually starts, I want to say this. If I don't know you, if I haven't met you, I really would like to meet you, get to know you. I'd like to meet somewhere with you, hear about your life, maybe, or um, talk about anything that you want to talk about, but not in the next three weeks. Because many of you know, for three weeks, uh, Debbie and I are going on our 40th wedding anniversary trip to Europe. (laughs) Yep, and we're leaving immediately after this sermon, so I won't be available until I get back. All right, that said, so if you've been paying attention right now, you probably have discerned that this Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday is the Sunday where we really celebrate the Trinitarian nature of our God. And it follows Pentecost Sunday because Pentecost was when the Spirit came down powerfully on the apostles. And that really clearly um, showed the Trinitarian nature of God. And so we are trying to gain a better understanding of how the Spirit works And so we've been doing a series in Acts on that. We've been looking at the way God has, through the Holy Spirit, um, saved people over over time, the gospel spread over time, and that the church was built. And so um, we're doing that in Acts. And I would just like to kind of quickly recap what we've done so far, because we're in chapter 11. So in the beginning, we saw that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his, his apostles. And when he, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then the next thing we saw was the promised Holy Spirit came. That promise was fulfilled, and the apostles were powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to witness just like Jesus said they would. And then... Um, we saw that the gospel spread to Samaria and that the, um, the gospel kind of built this bridge between the, over the animosity between the Christian Jews, Jews and the Samaritans. And it was an ancient rift and the gospel began to mend that. And then we saw how the church began to act. They, they began to meet together. They began to pay attention to the apostles' preaching. They began to... Um, gather for fellowship. They began to break bread, and then they uh, devoted themselves to the prayers. Then Jesse said, he gave this great sermon about how the, the Spirit can be a firm foundation in us when the world around us shakes, and how it can empower us to boldly speak the Word of God, and we should be doing that. And then we saw the choosing of the first deacons, and Stephen, full of grace, and full of the Spirit, was able to see the glory of God in his persecution and suffering. He saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing next to God. And then we saw the gospel spread. I said that, up into Samaria. And then we saw the conversion of Saul into the apostle Paul. And we saw how God did that through the quiet obedience of Ananias. So Ananias wasn't famous, but he was faithful. And so I think we can take that as a model for ourselves. We may never be famous, but we can be faithful. And who knows what God will accomplish through our quiet faithfulness. And then we see the gospel spread to the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. 
but the gospel spread to them, and they were saved. And, and so this rift that had always ex, uh, existed between the world or the rest of the world and the Jews began to be mended too. And so then we come to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we're going to see the gospel spread to the world, I hope. But the first part of chapter 11, which we didn't read and we're not going to cover in great detail, was Peter defending what he had done in chapter 10 to the leaders at Jerusalem. Because some men in Jerusalem had said that Peter had defiled himself by eating with uncircumcised men. And so Peter went through what had happened to him in Caesarea with Cornelius the centurion and how the spirit had made it clear to him that he was to preach the gospel to them. And when he did and they believed, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And when the Jerusalem leaders heard that, they paused and then they glorified God saying, ah, we see that God has made salvation and redemption possible for even the Gentiles. And so then there was, uh, there was still some conflict between Jews, uh, Christian Jews and non and Gentiles, but it was basically being mended. And so I, I hope you can see how the word of God now, like Jesus said it would, it's, uh, it, it was spread in Jerusalem, then it moved out to Judea, then it moved up into Samaria. And in our passage today, we're going to see it goes further. So uh, Wendy read it, so I'm not going to read it to you again. But here's this. I, I, I don't know if you're like me. I like to know where in the world I am. And I grew up in an age before the global positioning system and before G, uh, Google Maps, and before you have Mrs. Google on your phone telling you how to get from place to place. I like maps. I like paper maps, globes, and atlases. And so if you're like that, probably in the back of your study Bible, you have a section of maps. And if you want to open that up right now, go right ahead. If you don't, try and picture it in your mind. So there are several places mentioned in this, in this chapter. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, Tarsus, and Cyrene. And so if you look on your map, if you're looking on your map, find Israel and then go north up the coast of the Mediterranean. And the next place you will come to is Phoenicia. Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon. It's the area of modern-day Lebanon that you'll find there. And if you go up a little further and off the coast, there's an island, Cyprus. Ancient Cyprus is where modern-day Cyprus is. Back on the mainland, go up the coast a little further, you come to Antioch, Antioch of Syria. Antioch was the third largest city in, Syria, in the Roman Empire. It was third after Rome in Alexandria. And it is now modern-day Antakya in southeast Turkey, so Turkey. And if your map is detailed, go up just a little further north and west, and you'll come to Tarsus, and that's where Paul was. So you can see... The gospel's going up there, and I think if you uh, have some imagination, you could see how it's going to go through Turkey and then into all of modern-day Europe. Now, I forgot Cyrene. To find Cyrene, you have to go way back down. You have to pass Israel, go by Egypt, come to Libya, modern-day Libya, and that's where Cyrene was. So you can see that even people from way down there were coming way up here to Antioch in order to share the gospel. So it's spreading. So... The gospel's in Antioch, and the kingdom is growing, and people are being saved, both Jews and Gentiles, and the Lord is with them. And so the leaders in Jerusalem hear about it. 
And I go, oh, what's going on in Antioch? So they picked Barnabas, who was from Cyprus. He was a Levite. And they're going to send him up to Antioch to check things out. And so he heads on up to Antioch. And he gets to Antioch. He sees what's going on. He begins to minister himself to the people. More people come to the Lord. So many people came to the Lord that he needed more help. So he went up to Tarsus, got Paul, brought him back down to Antioch, and then they um, ministered for about a year. So that's where we are. Now I want to focus the rest of this time on one part of chapter 11. Two parts of one verse, verse 23. And that is when Barnabas came to Antioch, Luke says he saw the grace of God, and was glad. So, he saw the grace of God. That sounds very familiar to Stephen, too, seeing the glory of God. And you know, they have two things in common. They were spirit-filled, and those two uh, visions were the spirit enabling them to see something that they would not see naturally. So they were spirit-filled, and they were both suffering persecution. You remember Stephen was stoned, and now it says that Barnabas and the church in Jerusalem have been suffering persecution based on Stephen's stoning and that they've spread abroad. So, that's where we are. Now the question is, how is Barnabas able to see the grace of God? Or, or a better way to put that maybe is, what does Barnabas see that he credits to the grace of God? What does he see that he calls the grace of God? I think this is an important question for us. I know it is for me. Because if we can figure out what Barnabas saw and what he credited to the grace of God, perhaps we, in our own lives, can also see the grace of God. Because he saw it. He saw it then. He saw it around him. I like to see it. I would like to see it like he saw it. And then I would like to be glad. So now, grace. What is Grace. Grace is one of those words that has some, some great theological depth behind it. It's used 118 times in the New Testament. But I think when you boil all those down, if you read through all 118 of them, um, the, the kernel, the crux of it is that grace is really the demonstration of God's love for us, for the world, and for mankind. It's a visible demonstration. Um, and so... In, in Ephesians, which is a good book to read in the Bible, as all the books are, but this one is a good book to read to get a sense of grace. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we can see the grace of God when he brings people from death to life. That's one way we can see grace. Um, there are two words that are normally associated with grace. Um, one of those words is given, and one of those words is received. So that Paul can say things throughout his uh, letters. He says things like, we have received grace for the grace given me according to the grace given us, because of the grace given me by God, the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He goes, it goes on and on. So grace is a gift that we are given or that we receive. And, and the greatest gift of all, of course, is the person, 
of Jesus Christ, the Son of God that God gave us. And so we can see grace as God's love demonstrated in his gifts, and especially the gift of his Son. Now, we read a purple book. For those of you who are, didn't get the purple book, we read a purple book as a congregation. It was by Jacques Philippe. Um, and this is what he says in his book, Interior Freedom. He says, according to grace, we receive salvation and the love of God freely through Christ, quite apart from our own merits. And then we freely respond by the good works the Holy Spirit enables us to accomplish. So again, grace can be seen as God's love demonstrated in the good works that we do through the Spirit. Father Philippe continues, taking our stand on grace leads to life because it enables love to grow, expand, and flourish. And then I love this part. We have been placed on earth. I don't know if you read this. I hope you did. We have been placed on earth to learn love in the school of Jesus. He said love is simple. It's learning to give freely and to receive freely. We talked a little about that in Monday Thursday with the foot washing and what the foot washing means. But I took this school of Jesus. And I, sir, if there was ever a rationale for a church school, I think this. So back to Barnabas in Antioch. He arrives. <laughs> he arrives. He looks around. Luke says he sees the grace of God and he's glad. And so he must be, I'm, I'm assuming or I'm deducing that what he's seeing are people being moved from life, uh, death into life. He's seeing them learning in the school of Jesus, and then he's seeing the good works that they do as enabled by the Holy Spirit. So I myself find it amazing when Barnabas got to Antioch that the first thing he saw was the grace of God, and he was glad. Because in Antioch, there were a lot of other things going on that he could have seen. Antioch, the third largest city, was mired in moral decay. It was terrible. He could have been put off by the groves that were de uh, dedicated to the goddess Daphne. He could have been really disturbed by the orgies happening in the Temple of Apollo. But Luke doesn't say that. He says he saw the grace of God. I'm, I'm saying I want to do that. Remember, you might remember last week, Jesse said, there's this tendency sometimes to see and focus on negative I confess, I have that outlook in industrial strength. My family history has the shadow of judgmentalism all around it. In my career in the Army, critical thinking or criticism was rewarded. We were always looking to improve performance. And so we always focus on the negative. We focus on the things that didn't go right. We focus on the weak units, the weak people, and we did our best to improve them. But the only way you could do that was knowing what they were not good at it. And the only way to do that was focusing on the negative. And so I can slip back into that so easily. And even here, sometimes, I can focus on things that don't happen right and people who are... Different, different. Okay, so my prayer, sorry, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would enable me and empower me to, like Barnabas, see the grace of God and then be glad about it and not focus on that negative thing. So I'm probably the only one like that. Yeah, 
So I'm hoping that also you are interested in being able to see the grace around you and see what's happening. And so um, oftentimes I find that I, when I'm in it, it's hard. But when I look back over time, I can see the movement of grace. So this evening, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a little historical story. It's our story. And you may find it a little bit disturbing at first, but stick with me until the end. This story starts in 1994. In 1994, in Rwanda, there was a genocide going on between April and May of that year. Historians estimate that in those 100 days, 600,000 Tutsis were murdered by their neighbors and fellow citizens, the Hutus. They were just massacred. So genocide, devastatingly evil thing. I think you know that. I can't imagine having your friends and neighbors whom you grew up with, many whom you played with, now are out to kill you. I just can't imagine it. And I hope you can't imagine it. But I want to tell you two really disturbing things about this genocide. And they're recorded in Bishop Thad's book, Never Silent. If you haven't read that, you might want to get a hold of that. It's a great read. But he said there are two things. First, the entire world, the international community, they knew what was going on in Rwanda. And they did nothing to stop it. And the second thing he said was the church was complicit. The Catholic and Anglican leaders of the churches in Rwanda were Hutus, most of them. And they supported the Hutu government. And then the world would later find out some of them were actually participating in the genocide that happened in Rwanda. And so the church was a part. And now this is not a story about the restoration of the church in Rwanda. But suffice it to say that in Rwanda, there was a renewal, there was a revival, there was a restoration of the church there. Faithful men and faithful women risked their lives, they worked, they sacrificed, they prayed, until today, in a nation of 10 million people, there are approximately a million Anglicans worshiping in 13 dioceses. It's, it's a good story, but that's, that's not this story. The thing that they remember, those faithful people is that the international community knew what was going on in Rwanda and no one came to help them. No one came to stop the genocide. And that thinking so impacted a man named Emmanuel Collini that for the rest of his life, this would be a focus of his life. Fast forward, late 1990s, early 2000s, in America, there was something that some people called a spiritual genocide going on. But there were many faithful, faithful people who were praying for renewal. They felt a call for revival. They wanted a return to the historic Christian faith as it's been handed down to us. And so, since there was no one in there to help, just like there was no one in Rwanda, they asked for help from the global south. And Bishop Collini said this, when the, when the genocide happened in 1994, the world did not come to our aid. We are not going to return that favor. When anyone is in danger, we are going to not turn our backs. We are going to come help, whether it be physical danger or spiritual danger. And so this is what happened. 
Bishop Kalini from Rwanda, the, probably the poorest nation in the world, and a bishop from Singapore, they consecrated two American bishops and they sent them to uh, America as missionaries. One of those bishops, Chuck Murphy, would ordain a young priest in Denver in 2001. That young priest is Billy Waters. Billy Waters planted Wellspring Church. Wellspring Church grew, and they began to plant churches around the Denver area. And the last church they planted? Christ the King. Yes, Christ the King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I hope you can see the grace, the grace moving through that whole process of, of restoring the Rwandan church, of setting up a mission in America so that when there was a renewal required, Bishop Kalini and the Rwandans and the Global South, they were willing and able to help us. They sent us um, missionaries, and it, it's a hard connection to make, but the genocide in Rwanda and the international communities lack of response, so impacted Bishop Kalini that 24 years later, CTK came into existence. I think that's who. All right. But that's history. Yeah, that's history. So looking back, I can see it. I hope you can see it. But can you see grace today? Can you see grace around you? I can. I want, I want to tell you about it. I see six things as Grace. I see the grace of God in our priest and his family. They're called out of Cambodia to plant a church here. They are um, faithfully obedient to what they've been called to do. Jesse did the hard work of planting a church, and, and it's, there's some hard stuff in there. Um, he boldly proclaims the word of God from the pulpit and in his life. It's, it's amazing to me. I know most of you have met with him. If you haven't met with him, you should meet with him. He will speak truth to you in such a way that you too will see the grace of God. So I see the grace of God when I look at Jesse and Sarah. I see the grace of God in our minister of food, Jocelyn, who every week works to make sure that our fellowship time is the highlight or a highlight of our ministry here. And not just every day, every Sunday, the big meals at the uh, beginning of the month, like today, and uh, special events. So, and she's doing this all while raising a small family, and she's got a handful because she is trying to keep Wesley, she's trying to keep his desire for danger and adventure from doing him in. So she's doing all that, all that while keeping track of him. And so I see the grace of God when I see um, Jocelyn and Aaron. All right. I see the grace of God when, um, in our children's ministry and leader. You know, um, Becca's ability to put together curriculum and train up and teach young Christians is clearly a work of the Holy Spirit. And so I see the grace of God when I look at Becca and Michael. I see the grace of God in the way you all receive, accept, and welcome the people who come through our doors. You make them feel a part of our family. And it doesn't matter where they come from or who they are. It could be older Christians who are hurt by another church. It could be young Christians who are looking for a church home. It could be a questioning person who just wants to know what Jesus is about. You guys show it to them. And I, 
I'm amazed. When we baptize somebody and you clap for them, make them feel special. When we do birthdays and anniversaries, you clap for them, make them feel special. So I see the grace of God in the way that you welcome. I see the grace of God in the way you pray and take care of our own. Whether it be praying for children's surgeries, praying for a broken leg, praying for our pregnant ladies, praying for um, people that you know are suffering loss or in crisis. You check on them. You bring them meals. You, you call them. See how they're doing. You ask them back to church. So I see the grace of God in the way you pray for the people. Two more. I see the grace of God in the way uh, we do communion. This is my favorite part of the service is to stand up here and watch you guys come up to receive. And I see the grace of God in knowing every one of you most by name, which is a work of the Spirit in my life. <laughs> um, yep. And then I see the grace of God in the volunteers, people who read, people who crucify, people who serve. I, I just see the, I see the grace of God in the way you guys serve. So this is what I want to say. You all demonstrate every day to me the grace, the visible grace of God. And you demonstrate is about responding to God's love in the school of Jesus. It's about his forgiveness and hope, love, meaning, eternal life. It's all about that that you demonstrate to me. It's about knowing that God is for you, not against you, even when you're suffering. Yeah, you are the way grace becomes visible to me. And when I see you, I am glad. I hope that you can see the grace of God around you and in yourselves and that you too can be glad. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Oh, thank you for CTK and thank you for all the things that went before us to make us uh, the church that we are and to, to be able to plant here in Virginia Village. Thank you for sending your spirit on Pentecost so that even today in the 21st century, we can see and feel the works of the Holy Spirit around us. Thank you for empowering us. Thank you for Jesse and thank you for Jocelyn and thank you for Becca and thank you for this congregation's prayers and service. I just, uh, it's uh, inspiring to watch and I just want to give you, Lord, all of the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen.